This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What are some of the key trends in government technology? How are government agencies, such as the IRS, using emerging technologies to meet their missions? And how can industry and government collaborate more effectively? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Harrison Smith. Director of Enterprise Digitization at the Internal Revenue Service and President of the ACT Executive Committee. Harrison, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate you having me on, sir. Uh, would you tell us more about the history and mission of ACT IAC? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think ACT IAC, in its most recent form, uh, was established and, and renamed in 2004, the um, successor to an organization called the Federation of Government Information Processing Councils. Uh, and that came out out of a push uh, back in in the late 70s and 80s around what was a sort of a nascent, <laughs> nascent stage activity uh, around ADP type councils, figuring out how to share information and, and deal with those types of things. So they glommed together <laughs> and created the Federation of, of Government Information Processing Councils uh, back in 78. And um, that organization ended up having its first sort of more robust and formal event in uh, in 81 uh, in Atlanta, and uh, the um, one of the primary leaders uh, from the government perspective was uh, an individual named Jenny McCormick, and she supported. Uh, I think it was, if I'm if I remember correctly, it was, it was close to 15 years where she was the primary um, uh, formula of, of the types of engagements we were looking at, um, and it's actually one of the reasons why we uh, leverage Jenny's uh, legacy uh, in some of the awards that uh, that ACTIAC, uh uh, provides on an annual basis. Um, at, really, at the end of the day, that the tagline for for ACTIAC is to accelerate the government mission outcomes um, through collaboration, leadership, and education. And, and sometimes people will say, "Well, what, what does that actually mean?" Right? Uh, I, I think to me, you've got you know you're talking about accelerating right the government. Right. So there's a focus on the government's mission, which is why, frankly, the folks on the government side are here, and why the industry partners are on this side. And I, I really like to focus and, and highlight that partnership aspect of things. Uh, sometimes there is this, this perception, and I think it's an unfortunate, unfortunate and incorrect one uh, in many times, assumption that there's the government side, and, and the joke is if you go from government over to industry, then you're going over to the dark side of the force, right? That's uh, all part into the Star Wars references. Um, but it, it, it really is a partnership. The federal government is, is neither authorized nor appropriated to perform all the work itself. Um, and even if it were, um, one could argue that it doesn't, you know, doing so in a silo does not really 
accelerate the government remission. It really doesn't focus on the outcomes uh, because there are experts outside of the federal space that can really help us accomplish our mission more effectively and efficiently. Um, even, even something that is uh, fairly uh, government unique in terms of tax collection, and, and that's certainly an aspect of, of the IRS portfolio, but it's not everything that we do. Um, there are activities around identity authentication and verification, right, for uh, healthcare activities or insurance activities or fintech activities uh, that pertain to this. So really having that partnership and those lines of communications open uh, and helping them become more open uh, is really an area of focus. Um, and there is this, this government side of things in, in the act, and the corresponding partner is the Industry Advisory Council, uh, which was created in 1989. Uh, so we, we do work together uh, to help further the business of government. Very interesting mission, very important mission, a collaboration between government and industry. What is your leadership role within the ACT I Act? Yeah, well, I have the unenviable task of following people like uh, Mir Rote, uh, Margie Graves, Soraya Crea, um, uh, to your point, as the president of the ACT Executive Committee. They are uh, titans in this space, and uh, I, I'm trying to do my best to make uh, the individual who comes after me make their job a little bit easier by, by bringing the bar down because their bar that they left, the shoes that they left to fill was, was a little bit larger than, uh, than, than I would like. No, um, so again, but building, building on, on uh, what they uh, were able to bring forward, um, I worked, had the pleasure of working with Soraya for, for some time at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so I got to see her in this space as, as well as that space. Um, but ultimately, with, with the ACT Executive Committee, we look to provide thoughts and input around various aspects of ACT-IAC. Um, and in conjunction with uh, Ted Davies, who's the IAC chair, uh, and Dave Winogren, who is the, uh, the CEO of ACT-IAC, um, again, we look to help identify those areas where there seems to be an opportunity um, for things, whether or not because they're, they're emerging or whether or not because they're legacy and longstanding um, issues and challenges that federal government has, but really help focus focus that area and make sure that we've got uh, a corresponding area of awareness from, from the industry side in there. So Harrison, could you tell us more about what you do at the IRS? What are your duties and the mission of your office? Yeah, thanks. Uh, and that's uh, timing is everything. Uh, Michael, I, I was, uh, when I came to the IRS about four and a half, five years ago, I came in the procurement arena. And so I was the deputy chief procurement officer uh, and uh, supported uh, the chief procurement officer, Shannon Weber's, uh, and the procurement team over there. Um, really enjoyed enjoyed that work, um, and I'm, I'm fairly confident that uh, my my eagerness I'll use that term uh, my eagerness to support the program side uh, and craft acquisition and procurement approaches uh, that I thought better fit their needs and the needs of the IRS. Um, finally resulted in, in someone saying, fine, you try it, because it's not easy. <laughs> so I took a, I took a, a role as the, uh, as the co-director of the Enterprise Digitalization and Case Management Office with Justin at Bold Brush. And that was in, I think, in July or August of last year. Um, and in that office, and I'll get to kind of the, the history of it in a second, but, but we ultimately, we work, Justin and I and, and the team that we support, uh, we work to support and spearhead IRS efforts to empower taxpayers and IRS employees to resolve uh, issues in a simplified digital environment. And so again, kind of what, is that, what does that mean, right? Um, it means that where we can limit paper, we limit paper. It means that where we can increase access to machine-readable data and systems like our enterprise case management system uh, that talk to each other better, 
um, we do so. It means that if we can reduce the number of systems that perform similar uh, activities, uh, we do so. It means that if we can shift from low-value work to high-value work uh, or promote a positive taxpayer experience, we do that. And so there are different ways in, in which we pursue those. Sometimes we lead activities. Um, sometimes we, we support and provide guidance um, and help identify, hey, this is how it supports the IRS's digitalization strategy. And frankly, there are other times where we, we will sit in the backseat and say, this looks really cool. Can I get a, you know, a bag of popcorn and, and write down what I see and what you folks are able to learn? So it really is a different, a different challenge and a different opportunity every day. Uh, and it's something that's, that's really, really neat. Uh, Justin, again, my, my co-director, um, he focuses, the, the joke that we have is he focuses 90% of his time on enterprise case management and 50% of his time on digitalization. And I, I do the, uh, the, the alternative. And for anyone who's struggling with the, isn't that 140%? Yes, that, that's our awful, you know, government, you know, office joke that we work 140% of the time. But um, he, uh, he focuses on case management, uh, where we're working to consolidate the 60 some odd systems that we have. Uh, as well as 250 some odd business processes that are managed by those legacy systems. Um, and again, I focus the bulk of my time on digitalization. And so there's like a clear correlation here um, frequently between the digitalization aspect and, and case management, um, because obviously if you have folks who are working on um, cases within the IRS, having information in digital form that can be shared um, across uh, separate activities and, and, and potentially divergent activities is really important thing to do. Um, but it's not everything that, that digitalization pursues. Right? We also talk, tackle, about, tackle things and talk about tackling things uh, that more directly align with, with taxpayer engagements and, frankly, the ability of IRS personnel to, to shift from low-value work to high-value work. Uh, so we really do pursue uh, the paper aspect of things, uh, but we also pursue things uh, potentially, uh, like how do we establish tools that in a digital environment, which are readily available to taxpayers so that they can perhaps answer questions before needing to call the IRS personnel. So case management came out uh, about a year and a half ago as a formal office. Uh, and then the digitalization piece came uh, came to be the supplement of that in July or so of last year. So uh, that's a little bit of the background about what I do on a daily basis. So Harrison, what are some of the key challenges facing GovTech? Here's the thing. Some of the most prominent challenges that we have facing government technology have nothing to do with the technology, right? Their business process, their policy, their culture, their incentives, their funding and appropriations and procurement and contract administration and, and resourcing and scaling, right? And, and it's a popular thing to speak in absolutes. Right. The government can never do this, or the government's always great at this, or if we just did open source, or if we just did that. Um, that's a popular thing to do. It, it fits a lot better on Twitter and the like. But it's, it's problematic in that in order for it to be right for any duration of time, it means that nothing can ever change. And I will say that the only constant in this space is change. Uh, what was a good idea two or three years ago is no longer a good idea. What was popular two or three years ago is, is no longer popular. Um, things change. Uh, and so I prefer the nuance of, of noting what works well and, and where we can improve. Um, that's kind of the challenges slash opportunities piece that I see. So what works well? Our, our mission and the people that support it. Uh, are there areas to improve? Absolutely. Uh, but I believe in, in both uh, the people and the government mission on a fundamental and, and very, very basic level. Another thing that we do well and can leverage, data. We have gobs and gobs and gobs and gobs of data in the federal space. 
Uh, and the IRS is a perfect example of that. You want access to information and forms going back, you know, six or seven years? Cool. How about like six or seven decades? I got that. Um, leveraging the information, leveraging the data, and finding out what is valuable about, about that and performing an ROI on, on how much that value, uh, excuse me, that data is valuable to you, uh, that's, that's a different conversation. But there's a huge, huge area of opportunity there. Um, where we can improve. And this is where I tend to get excited. And if you haven't already figured it out, we'll, we'll get to it shortly. This work excites me. I think it's cool. I'm a little bit of a dork at heart. But this stuff is really, really neat where, where we have an opportunity to move things forward. And I think there are three areas that, I, that we have the most room to improve in the past couple of years have changed fundamentally. Uh, and those three areas to me are acquisition, innovation, engagement with industry, and funding flexibilities. So acquisition, innovation, right? So whether it's the procurement innovation branch at the IRS, uh, AFWorks, uh, the Department of Homeland Security Procurement Innovation Lab, uh, CSOP, Challenges, other transaction authorities, uh, the establishment of acquisition innovation advocates right, by agencies, which are leads who focus, obviously, and advocate for, obviously, acquisition innovation. You've got a system that is reinforcing the hard work that has to be done to change what we consider possible. Uh, if you told people a few years ago that they could do an agile type procurement within the federal acquisition regulation, uh, not another transaction authority, not a research and development authority, not a broad agency announcement authority, and have multiple automation tools active in 97 days to improve data in a government system, they would have wondered about your sanity or questioned what you were doing in your free time, or perhaps some combination of the two. Uh, we've now proven that it is not only a possibility, but a tested and proven one. Um, we have activities around, I mean, the folks that it, it, it definitely uh, is worth mentioning, the team uh, at the IRS uh, procurement, Marcia Almeida, Holly Donawa, Eric Stevenson, Rebecca Katz, that whole team, uh, their work on Pilot IRS is, is foundationally different than what we could have done or have, would have been willing to do a couple of years ago. Um, you want to test something out before you try it out, before you deploy it? We can do that now. It's not a given in every situation. Uh, nor it is appropriate in every situation, but it still is an opportunity. Industry engagement, which is the, the second of the three areas. Similar to acquisition and innovation advocates, we're talking about the ability to engage with industry in a different way now. Um, the OFDP for some time, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy for some time, has been putting out what it calls myth-busting memos around what you can actually do. And when you have organizations and policymaking institutions at the highest levels of the government saying, no, you can actually sit down and have a conversation with an industry partner without feeling as though you have to talk to every single one of them on every single hour of the day. Um, that really does help. The fact that they've recommended through OFPP memos that there's an industry liaison at agencies, of, of an individual person who's dedicated to, to performing this activity. And there's the industry liaison council, right? Reverse industry days challenge days, demo days, and things like listening sessions. So, so reverse industry days are, are for, for those of listeners who may not have an idea about that, that's a concept of usually industry days are, are around the government talking to slash at um, industry partners. And so what we worked on some, some years ago, starting at, uh, at DHS when I was there, um, uh, supporting Soraya Correa, uh, but also here at the IRS, we worked on reverse industry days where industry would talk to us. And I'll never forget being in the first reverse industry day that we ran. And the, the, the chief information officer of, of DHS, Luke McCormick at the time, 
literally came up to me in the middle of a panel briefing and said, isn't this the coolest thing? Because we were hearing from those firms, this is what drives up our cost. This is what confuses us. This is what makes us not bid. We spend 70% of the costs to chase an opportunity, a major opportunity that's more than 10 million before the solicitation ever drops. And you just see heads in the, in the audience whipping around saying, really? That, that's really what happens here? And listening sessions are a logical extension of that. We were having a conversation with the IRS. Frankly, we were, we were sort of arguing uh, amongst ourselves about what we thought might come out of a particular solicitation and what the pros and cons were being. And someone said, you know what? Industry would kill to be uh, a fly on the wall here. They would love to just listen in on this. Uh, and one of us said, well, why, why can't we let them do that? We said, yeah, let's do that. So we set up a session where we literally sat down in a, in a conference room. This is pre-COVID. So we sat down in a conference room and had an argument uh, about you know, what, what the pros and cons were of a particular situation. And um, it was a really, really neat way to do things. So that was, those are listening sessions. So those are starting to catch, catch, um, catch, catch a fire, so to speak. Um, I think funding is the last piece, right? So the Modernizing Government Technology Act has fundamentally altered some of the conversations around funding, recouping savings, and managing major IT projects. Um, it's not only the Technology Modernization Fund, but it's also the agency-specific working capital fund and the conversations around those activities that have really started to strengthen uh, some of the individual areas that we're looking at. So again, those are the three areas where I think there's a lot of opportunity, but I'm really excited about, again, as you could tell, <laughs> I'm really excited about what the, what the future has to hold. So Harrison, could you tell us more about yourself and your career path? Uh, I'm not sure it's a path so much as it might be a walkabout, I think is the term, uh, a meandering. Uh, for those of you who uh, know what the family, the family circus, you know, Billy is, is supposed to go pick up, you know, sugar from the, uh, the neighbor and goes all over the place with the dotted line. That's what I think my, uh, my career is. My, my academic background um, was in international relations and U.S. foreign policy. Like my master's thesis was on the 1972 uh, anti-ballistic missile treaty and national initial defense. Like I was, again, there's a consistency of dork here uh, and, and it's okay. I can make fun of myself as well. Um, but I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. Um, I think, I think what, is, what, gets me, what gets me going on any given day and what I get unnecessarily excited about are, are the possibility of things that are out there uh, and the fantastic ability of, of people uh, and the fantastic accomplishments of people that we don't necessarily see. Uh, I sometimes talk about things in terms, of, in terms of systems not functioning and not supporting the people that they ultimately are designed to support. And so at the end of the day, I was, I was talking with somebody else about this, but at the end of the day, what, what I think is, is fantastic and wherever I can help in that vein, I, I, I love to help, um, is how do we make the systems function um, better for the people that they're intended to benefit? Um, and that's what gets me going. And so I, I started in procurement uh, as a presidential management fellow uh, back, in, back in, gracious, uh, in the early 2000s. Um, moved around a little bit. Um, and some details as a part of that program, but ultimately went to a, a fledgling agency in 2005 or six, I forget which one, um, uh, at the Department of Homeland Security uh, and spent uh, time there doing research and development, uh, uh, contracting and, and procurement. And then I went into IT and strategic sourcing. And ultimately, the, the last position that I had there before I left was, was the industry liaison at, at DHS. 
And I got to learn an awful lot of things about what was possible. I got to learn an awful lot of things about um, the inefficiencies that the government uh, inadvertently and unknowingly uh, inserts uh, into the engagements that it has with, with, with industry. And to me, that's the area that, that brings us back to ACT-IAC. That's one of the areas where I don't think that we always see it in the government. Right? We don't always see the fact that if, there, if we put an inefficiency into the process, into the system of contracting and, and getting, you know, bidding with the government, trying to support their mission, it will ultimately come back to the government as a negative in, in any number of ways. It's going to come back to a negative to the government in terms of inadequate levels of competition because someone says, I have no idea what Harrison is saying. I don't know what his need is. I'm, I'm not even going to bother. I'm going to go over here to HHS or I'm going to go over here to, to the private sector because I know what they do because they'll talk to me. Now I don't have the best potentially alternatives available to me. I'm going to pay the costs of a business development person. You know, they, they work hard at identifying opportunities that match up to their their firm's value proposition, but I'm going to pay whatever cost they have in running around trying to find out what we want. That comes back in wrap rates. Wrap rates will ultimately be paid for to a certain extent by the federal government. So even if it wasn't the right thing to do, and even if it didn't help the system function better to have the conversations with their industry partners, it just makes sense because all those inefficiencies just come back and have costs and have competition repercussions. Um, and frankly, get in the way of, of us all doing what we want to do, which is to support the government mission uh, in a way that's efficient and effective. Harrison, what characteristics makes one an effective leader and what leadership principles guide your efforts? Yeah, uh, thanks, Michael. That's a, that's, a really, that's a really good question. And one, frankly, um, that, is, that is, I find it's, it's difficult um, to, to highlight because, again, it changes. What I thought was was the right thing to do or the best thing to do, you know, two years ago, two months ago, whatever it is, um, is not necessarily what I think is the right thing today. Uh, I think one of the things that that COVID and the pandemic has, has taught us is that, you know, there was an assumption that we had in for many different types of jobs and activities was that this cannot be done. Um, you know, this cannot be done remotely. It's just not something that we can support. And now all of a sudden it is something that we can do remotely. And are there different challenges and and cybersecurity and and tele postures and equipment? Absolutely, digitalization activities, yeah. But it changes, and and I think ultimately to take advantage of and and be able to respond effectively, um, as a call it a leader, right? Um, is you've got to be honest, right? And be honest includes being honest with yourself, uh, and being honest with yourself includes saying I messed that up. Or there's a better way to do that. Um, being honest includes telling, frankly, the, the folks that you support. And, and that's not a euphemism or a different way to talk about things. Like I, I think that the most effective leaders are more concerned about what will make the team that they support successful than getting in front of somebody and, and doing something. Um, ultimately, my, I don't do the work that changes things anymore. I don't write contracts anymore, right? I help uh, help enforce a system, excuse me, reinforce a system and incentivize a system that functions efficiently and helps us get where we want to go. Uh, and so my my effort is only really useful when it helps somebody else. Um, and that's an honesty thing because frankly, you know, pick the number, pick the amount of time ago, my job was to crush contracts. Like that's what I did. I wrote contracts, I awarded stuff, I administered contracts, that's what I did. 
I talked to industry or I did this or I did that. Um, and it changes. And so you've got to be honest. Um, and at the end of the day, it requires a, a fairly high level of reality check for yourself. Like everybody's got an ego. I've got an ego. I don't know you very well, Michael, but obviously you've got, you're a human being. You've got an ego. But it's, it's not about us. Right? It's not about us on so many different levels. Um, one of the leaders in, in the IRS made a, a fantastic comment, which really resonated with me. She said, you don't have any authority. You have zero authority. Uh, and she wasn't yelling at me, just to be clear, but it, 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 still, it still retains. You have no authority. The position that you currently occupy has authority. And I take that to extend that into a situation where you need to make yourself worthy of the team that that position supports and the authority that's been invested in that. Um, and I think having that, that insight into, hey, we need to be able to identify where we're going to go, generate the resources and the capabilities to, to get there for the team, uh, but ultimately be honest. Um, because when you do that and you trust the people that you work with and you trust the people that you work for, um, it is unreal uh, the mountains that will be moved uh, in order to get the team where it needs to be. Um, so again, that, that's to me. It's not about you uh, and be honest with yourself as well as with others. What are some of the key trends in government technology? I'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Harrison Smith, Director of Enterprise Digitization at the IRS and President of the ACT Executive Committee. Harrison, what are some of the key government technology priorities and areas of import for ACT-IAC? I think there's a lot of work that you can talk about here um, in terms of communities of interest. It's, uh, I think that's the, the most obvious way because there's a lot of, lot of challenges out there. Community interests like acquisitions, like uh, cybersecurity, right? Like uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, health, right? Management and modernization around the IT space, networks and, and telecom. Um, those are opportunities in terms of priorities and areas of, of impact for, for ACT-IAC uh, in large part because it helps both industry and government leaders and, and, and folks get together and uh, understand what's, what's possible uh, and talk to each other. Uh, the health community of interest, uh, just I think last uh, December, uh, came out with a white paper around best practices in modernizing uh, modernization efforts within, within the government. And so these are things where not only do those teams learn as they engage, but they share 
uh, with the broader uh, government technology community uh, going forward. So those are, those are I think, are the, the areas that are really good areas of highlight for us. Harrison, would you share with us the latest developments in intelligent automation and the work done to ignite low value to high value transformation in the federal government? For example, how are technologies like uh, robotic process automation bots enabling government staff to work smarter and faster? Yeah, I think that it's the the potential uh, for this type of technology to really change. And I think the biggest thing is to shift from low value work to high value work. Right, and and it and it it comes into places where it might be obvious where there are are systems that right now that people will will manually move things, uh, or will manually transcribe data, right? And and there are certainly areas within the IRS where where currently right now we focus a little bit too much on that and rely a little bit too much on that. Um, but it's in the HR arena, right? It's in the procurement arena, right? And so and so finding this balance of now, these are activities that I have to be able to complete. These are activities that are required as part of legislation. Um, and ultimately looking at how much do you value the time and the resources associated with that. It uh, clearly needs to get done. But anything from data transcription um, to data cleansing, right? I mean, the IRS uh, procurement team uh, just earlier this year, they used a robotic process automation tool in conjunction with the support of, of Nancy Seeger, the CIO, and, and that team, to process 3,500 procurement modifications in two days. And they also used that to, to engage with the firms who needed to, uh, to be aware of those contract modifications and upload the documents and, and the information into the systems that they needed to be done. That would have normally taken a person more than a year to do. And they did it over the course of a long weekend. Right, so this ability to, to shift the emphasis and the requirements of a particular activity or function or team um, and create, not only create the bandwidth, which allows you to continue to improve the process, but also to create a repository and a source of machine readable data, which ultimately will help you drive the decision that you go as you go ahead. Right now, do I not only have information about um, the correct information going into systems, the correct processes going on in a short amount of time, I also now have information about how frequently that occurs. And then it's a cycle. It starts to feed on itself. Uh, it starts to feed on itself. And you get efficiencies here. You gain information there. And you're really able to accelerate going forward in, in areas that you never really thought about. Uh, and that, to me, again, is, is one of the primary areas within technology that I find fascinating, is that we can access and analyze data at rates that are just we never would have thought possible. Pick it three years, five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. And so the ability to use that information um, in a responsible way and protecting the information, obviously. But to use that information to make better and more informed decisions, um, it really underscores you know, evidence-based policy making and the like, but it really underscores our capability uh, and ability to do that. So Harrison, turning towards digital transformation in government agencies, I was wondering how has COVID-19 exposed the urgency for government to shift to digital services, accelerating the use of self-service tools and other technologies that enable people to easily engage with government remotely? Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of pieces here. I think that the, um, it, it's, it's sort of a dual side coin. Again, there's the nuance piece that I, that I mentioned earlier in terms of opportunities and, and challenges. But you've got a situation where we have the ability for more people to do work from different locations, which frankly raises the level of the federal government as an employer of choice, right? Sometimes in the, in, the, in the private sector, this is something that's more acceptable. 
Uh, and when the federal government's able to catch up a little bit in that space, it helps with talent, right? It also tends to highlight things that you, you don't necessarily, as you are working through activities that has to be done on a daily basis, you are physically in a space and you are mentally in a space um, where here are the set rote number of tasks that I have. And when we disengage from that space and we start to say, hey, I can't do it in this form or fashion anymore. I have to do it in a, in a different fashion. You start fundamentally asking yourself different questions. Well, why do I, why do I do that? Right? What's the benefit in that? And so I think the ability just like you get out of your office and take a walk and think about things differently. Um, you go to a conference in some levels um, to, to engage with folks and talk about things that, that work differently. I think in, in, a, in an odd space, uh, and certainly the pandemic has its untold difficulties, not the right term, challenges, difficulties, sadness, all of the above uh, for, for many, many different people, but it identifies opportunities on how we can do things better. Um, and that gets into areas around the, the IRS. I recently uh, worked to change the process, not only for, for submitting, but also intaking from a digital perspective, uh, power of attorney forms. Um, this is something that... Uh, uh, previously, folks would have to come in and sign in person uh, with tax practitioners, and this is something where we were able to leverage a technology and approach in, in fairly short order over the course of, the, uh, of a series of months to ultimately get that in an intake digital method. And not only did it help uh, with the information coming in and it helped to become more efficient from an IRS perspective, but it made it easier and more productive and safer, frankly, for folks on the outside. Um, it got to the point where uh, in, I think, the fourth day uh, of, of the system being active, there were 10,000 hits um, in the morning. Uh, and someone actually submitted the first form at one o'clock in the morning uh, on a Saturday morning. So clearly there's, there's a level of excitement here. Uh, but our ability to pay attention to what is possible, to think about things in a different form, um, and really um, really pursue those is, is something that I think has changed. Harrison, I'd like to shift to the acquisition process and the intersection between acquisition and technology. What technologies are enabling transparency in the acquisition process from end to end? Yeah, I think we go back, I, I mentioned a little bit about the example of, of procurement. Um, I think you've got you've got the, the ability, and, and here's one of the areas that I think it comes back to the data piece, right? Um, there is the Data Act, uh, which for those of you, the listeners who may not be, I know you're, you're familiar with it, Michael, but the listeners who may not be familiar with it, it's it's effectively uh, a requirement to uh, help the government uh, improve the data on contract obligations, which sounds pretty dorky, right? Fair enough. Uh, but the reality of it is that this is something where not only taxpayers and citizens want to know where the government's money is being spent, this gets us back to a conversation that we had about efficiency and how industry partners can pursue things. They use this publicly available data uh, to find out when opportunities are coming up and what they might want to pursue. Uh, but but frankly, uh, uh, the last Data Act audit that I think went out said that the federal government on average got the date of the contract action wrong 30% of the time. The date the contract was actually signed. And there's at least one person who says, I can't believe that could happen. How could that possibly happen? And I would say, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big error. I'll give you that. But when, for instance the IRS processes 10 to 12,000 transactions a year, and there are 54 fields that pertain to procurement acquisition. In each one of those 10 to 12,000 transactions, I don't know what the math is, but that's a lot of typing. And so there's you know, just hand error, hand jamming errors that are in here. Um, and so pursuing you know, 
uh, scanning capabilities, optical, optical character recognition type technologies, which will say, hey, here's a repository for my contract action. I can see in this particular block that it was signed on this particular date. Now I can go to a publicly available website, FPDSNG, and say, hmm, that's not the date. Would you like me to fix that for you? Here's the screenshot from FPDSNG, and here's the piece of paper that you, contracting officer, signed. Would you like me to make this change for you? Uh, and I'm elaborating here. This is an, exact, an actual example, but these are the types of things where we can accelerate and improve the data upon which we make decisions. I think there's also conversations around, um, you know, not just the automation piece, but the machine learning piece. When we're able to parse through and look at, for instance, documents and solicitations that go out relative to the most recent um, causes and, uh, and provisions. Um, this is something where usually in the past, someone would go through either in, in what we call the baby file, which is the hard copy file, or go through a website and literally look at all the dates for all the causes and then correlate it back to their particular solicitation. Or better or worse, I'm not sure which one it is, they look at the last one that they did. And so some of these clauses, there's tons of some of these clauses, right? And so using automation tool uh, and OCR type tools where we can pull the information out of there and, and highlight the issues that require more high-level thought, right? That's the kind of thing that we want to look at. Um, it really is impressive as, as the data becomes better through these, these types of activities. Um, the, the potential application uh, and our ability to pull things out of, uh, of the information that we have is incredibly, incredibly beneficial. Harrison, how important is it to accelerate agility in government and pursue an agility-first policy which can galvanize a more effective and adaptive government that delivers better outcomes? Some of this goes back to the conversations around absolutes, right? We can't have an agility-first everywhere, right? I'll take the example of the IRS. We are not going to start with the most complex activity. We shouldn't start with the most complex activity unless we have to, because there are all the appropriate and needed concerns about the, the integrity of the taxpayer data, right? There's all these concerns about these types of activities. But there are spaces where, and this is why we really have to focus on, there are spaces where we can have this agile first, this sort of, um, this iterative process. Um, and, and our ability to really start to leverage and focus on those use, business use cases, where we say, you know what? I would love to figure out a way to help out um, consumers, taxpayers, whatever it is, uh, be able to find out the status of a particular application, uh, find out where, where's my refund, right? That's an application that, that, that the IRS has. Um, but I, I don't know how long it's gonna take me and I need some data and I need some information. Our ability to leverage publicly available information um, or dummy information, to find out whether or not the process will work. And frankly, in some instances, how much the taxpayer or user likes it to begin with, um, that's huge. And our ability to do that in a much more truncated and segmented activity, right? Within, within enterprise, enterprise digitalization, uh, we look at things from, if we can't figure out the answer to it in, in 30 to 120 days, we're probably not gonna look at it. Now, that's not to say that necessarily the, the activity needs to be completed in 30 to 120 days. But we need to have enough information to decide whether and how to proceed. And that's not, again, something that you can do in every instance, but that ability to focus on what is the biggest constraint right in front of you, see if that can be addressed. Frankly, do it wrong at least once or twice, but look at that, pivot to figure out what, what can actually occur, and then make a, frankly, a very, very strict uh, and, and very sort of hard-nosed decision about what to pursue and what not to pursue. Um, there's real benefit in that. 
the government has an issue with some cost bias, which again, sort of an, I'm again, dork. This is a fairly <laughs> consistent theme here. Some cost bias means why well, I've already spent a million dollars on this. One, it does, it does matter a little bit, right? But you don't want to necessarily continue funding, putting good money after bad. Now, if you say, hey, I can find out whether or not this is going to work in a million dollars, or I can find out whether or not this is going to work with $10,000. That wasn't always po possible in the past, but it, it can be possible now. And those are the areas that I get really excited about. That's the agility first policy. And when you look at a more effective and adaptive government, not everywhere, right? But highlighting those areas where we can really pursue and identify what works well. Um, and frankly, it's not always going to work. Uh, and I will tell you that the support from, from folks like the commissioner of the IRS, who publicly went on the IRS's emerging technology day last year and said, I want the team to swing for the fences. I want them to swing for the fences. It's not always going to work out, but I want them to swing for the fences because one third of the time, if you make contact, you're an all-star. And if you knock it out of the park once or twice um, over the course of a year, then, then you're a superstar. Um, and that's the kind of approach that we need to have in some spaces. And I think really the, 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 the sweet spot, so to speak, uh, the nuance and the difficulty is identifying where can we take those chances? How can we be informed and make sure that we are not wasting taxpayer money and not wasting our time and our resources? But how are we doing that in the correct way for the correct use cases? That's the area that's really exciting and really, and really our opportunities to push forward quickly. What emerging technologies hold the most promise for federal government agencies? I'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Harrison Smith, Director of Enterprise Digitization at the IRS and President of the ACT Executive Committee. Now, Harrison, I'd like to transition to your leadership role at IRS. What are your key priorities for IRS's Enterprise Digitization and Case Management Office? Yeah, uh, thanks for that, because I think there's, it becomes a, a sort of rule of three that we joke about. So we talk about... Usually when you go to digitalization, folks immediately head into what's the new technology that you're purchasing. Um, and, and chasing the shiny object is, is frankly not the way to go about this. Um, we look at business process, we look at policy, and we also look at technology. And in the technology space, um, as with other things, but in the technology space especially, are we hand-in-hand are we -hand with, with the CIO's office uh, and frankly taking guidance and direction from them you know, in their space, they're, they're really good at this, right? Even if it wasn't their authority uh, and their portfolio, they're, they're really good at it. And it's just intelligent to, to ask them for their support and guidance. 
Um, but so we just don't look at tech. So that's the first sort of set of three. We also look at things in terms of incremental, adjacent, and transformative. Incremental is something not only from a technology standpoint, it certainly can, can work in that space, but there are things that we can do here and now. There are decisions about how do I start this process? There are decisions about um, what can I decide to pursue in, in the absolute near term? And adjacent is more frequently expanding upon an existing business process or technology, right? If you've got a digital intake form like eFax, which we have, um, why isn't it used for this particular approach or this particular business case? We would call that adjacent because we're, we're utilizing things and it's a little bit more, uh, it takes a little bit more time, but it's not fundamentally changing how that thing functions. And then there's the transformative piece. And that is going from um, pieces around, hey, we are going to do tax forms in paper. Transformative process would be, are we going to always do tax forms in paper? Are we going to require you know, that this type of activity occurs? These are sort of the fundamental departures from the types of things that we would necessarily do. But here's the thing, Michael, is that they require and they benefit from and must adjust based on what you do in the incremental and adjacent spaces. Going off frequently, the federal government and large bureaucracies will go off um, for 6, 12, 18 months and talk about internally what they want to do. They'll get a lot of really smart people in the proverbial broom closet, and they'll try to become experts or become experts on things and say, great, this is what I need, and this is what I need support on. Great. Now, let's go out and procure this. Well, that's going to take me 6, 12, 18 months. And then let's deploy it in 6, 12, 18 months, if you're lucky. And then we look back on this process where a lot of really smart people spend a lot of time and a lot of effort, um, and, and we don't have much, or if we have much, it's like three or four or five years past this. Um, and so really being able to, to leverage that space and to strike that balance of those three areas between incremental adjacent and transformative is, is great. Um, excuse me, it's great, it's, it's, it's great when you can get it right, but it's also a very big lift and something to work on. Uh, the last sort of rule of three that I'll, that I'll offer, uh, especially for, for this fiscal year and this year going forward for us, is how do we dramatically increase the availability of forms and correspondence to the IRS in three different ways? And those three different ways are digital intake, things that are not coming in paper, right? Digital intake, machine-readable data, and digital storage. Uh, and we are having almost a myopic focus, uh, well, not to, to you know, the exclusion of other things, but we have a, a great area of focus on those three areas. How do I get more forms of correspondence able to come in digitally? How do I get more sets of information available via machine-readable data? And that could be via the intake method, that could be through OCR, that could be through 2D barcode, a lot of different ways to do that, and ultimately the digital storage piece. Um, and it's finding the ways, the mixes of business process, policy, and technology. It's finding the ways of incremental adjacent and transformative uh, to address those things um, in such a way where we have that stitching together of ideas and opportunities so we can benefit folks in the near term, um, find some positive ROI as we learn more about the long-term efforts that we're going to pursue on an enterprise-wide standpoint. Interesting. So very important transformation there. What are some of the key management challenges you face in your leadership role at IRS? Um, I, th I think that there, the challenges uh, frequently are also the opportunities. Um, but I think there there is the, um, again, I keep on talking about balance and, and as well as me being a dork, right? But but part of the balance thing is is how much how much effort do I want to spend on getting a fantastic return on investment? So that I can justify my existence, quote unquote, right? That's sort of the phrase. How much time and effort do I want to spend on, on, on crafting a five-year digitalization roadmap um, versus how much do I want to be able to, to help folks in Austin, Texas, or in Ogden, or Kansas City, 
function better on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and, and so you see there's a lot of eyes in there, right? There's a lot of, how do I do this? How do I do this? And it goes back to the, the comment and the conversation we had around leadership. It is not about me. And I am not the expert. And so the balance that we strike here is how do we have these broad sort of multifaceted conversations about how the IRS functions, but at the same time benefit from the true experts. And the true experts uh, are the revenue agents. Uh, the two experts are the tax examiners. The true experts are the folks who work in submission processing, who work in whistleblower, who work in appeals, who work in you know, TEG, who work in large business international and do these things on a day-to-day -day basis. They know what's happening. They know what's going on. So striking that balance of this, this sort of long-term, how do we look at things across the enterprise, but also drive down into to say, hey, somebody at, at you know, in, in information technology or wherever it is, they said, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And they're trying to figure out why. And if we can find out a better way to do that, that will scale across the enterprise. And that's the balance. And use the phrase, stitch it together. That's the balance. And that's why we pursue things like, there's an opportunity here to really leverage scanning as a service um, or gleaning machine-readable data from existing um, hard copy, you know, analog paper documents. Um, but how do I focus in on this very incremental, minimum viable product approach while still hopefully ensuring that it helps us learn as to what will scale and get to an enterprise? So we really do have to look at these things from we've got a portfolio of, of nine projects. We've got a portfolio of nine projects. How do we make sure that we are really allocating our resources to those ROI that really demonstrate enterprise-wide control, uh, enterprise-wide benefit, excuse me. How do we do that? Um, and those are the challenges, I think. We have so many good ideas, Michael. We have so many good ideas. And I don't want to go off into a broom closet and pretend like, you know, we, the team, know the best answer for every single one of those fantastic ideas. Because first of all, doing that in and of itself would be almost a full-time job. So it really is that balance of how do I get these near-term results without creating a lot of technical debt, without creating a lot of organizational debt for running around and chasing the shiny object or being the cat that's chasing the laser pointer beam, right? How do I do that uh, and take things on its head and also support the enterprise-wide? Um, that's the difficulty. It's the scaling and it's the balancing. Those are the challenges that we face and those are the things that take up a lot of our time. But it's, it's a great and wonderful thing to focus on because the opportunity to move things ahead um, is, is frankly unparalleled in my opinion. So how are you leveraging data and analytics to enhance the customer experience and meet your mission? Uh, well, really, we look at it. It's something where, where you have to understand um, that you don't know what you don't know, right? Um, so there's, there's, this, there's this sort of horse cart chicken egg. It's chicken egg, I think, is better. Horse cart assumes that one leads the other. But there's this chicken egg issue is, great, well, how can I find out what the best, what, what a consumer, what a taxpayer would most like in this type of engagement? because I just don't have the data there. Now you could spend an awful lot of time doing that manually, or frankly, you could hopefully find a way to create a small pilot type activity that will help you learn as you go ahead. But you've got to make sure that that pilot activity is modular and can change as it goes ahead based on the information that you're getting. So to me, I think in the analytics space um, and in the customer experience space, the, the, the capacity and the number of offerings that are out there to fundamentally just process information um, at, at a faster rate. And that's not only talking about near-term information, right? It couldn't be that saying that, hey, I can do an analysis assuming that X equals Y for the past five years. Okay, go off and run that. And at one point in time, that would take weeks, months, quarters, right? Now, it's, oh my goodness, we can do this in a couple of days. And frankly, if 
the machine learning algorithm or the bot or whatever it is messes it up and does it wrong, you want it to do it right, right? But it doesn't necessarily identify a causal factor. That's a better way to explain it. Then you just turn it around and do it again. The cadence of turnover for information uh, has dramatically shrunk. Now, I do think that conversely, you do have to understand, like this is the issue with one of the issues with cloud, right? Cloud may not always make you uh, spend less money, right? This is sort of the, uh, you only pay for, pay for what you use. Well, if you're over there ordering 99 cent movies off of Netflix all day long, that, that runs up pretty quick. Well, it's just 99 cents. I can pay for whatever I use. Yeah, but you still watched 17, you know, the 17 versions of, of the Fast and the Furious last week. That's going to that's run up there. So it's, again, it's striking those balances between the data analytics that you can, that you can gather uh, and, and the speed and the alacrity with which that processes uh, occur, and ultimately leading that to, to benefit uh, and to drive the information to drive the decisions going forward. So, Harrison, my next question is around emerging technologies. How are you using or planning to leverage emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotic process automation, RPA, and or blockchain? Yeah, Michael, I think that's, that's a great question because there, there are, again, I think this gets back to let's go chase the shiny object and the toy. Um, so I think one of, the, one of the biggest places that we're looking at, I think the reason we're doing it a little bit differently, uh, and we mentioned this re- recently in a, in a beta.sam posting, so we're looking at technology verticals um, where we don't really care what tools that you're using, right? There, there's some indication that AI, ML, RPA would, would benefit here, but we don't want to dictate the solution that industry is using. And I think that when we talk about solution cases and use cases in this space, in the emerging technology arena, and we say, we're going to back away from trying to become the experts on this particular application. We want you to show me how you can do it. We want you to demonstrate to me how you can do it. I don't want a 75-page proposal. I need those for some things, but I don't want a 75-page proposal. I want to give you a form with dummy data, and I want you to tell me how much machine-readable data you can get it out, get out of it, and what is going to be the success rate at a low resolution or poor quality. I'm going to give that to you. Um, and that's the space where, from our perspective with enterprise utilization, those are the types of technology and those are the types of approaches where I want to be able to say, in the near term, in like 30 days or maybe over the course of, frankly, a proposal, I want to be able to identify what are the potential applications for this? What's my data on return on investment? And how quickly can I shift things? Right? And shifting doesn't just mean let me glean machine and compile machine-readable data from this particular form now to that particular form now to that particular form. But ultimately, how am I going to make decisions on what to potentially uh, deploy enterprise-wide? And one of those determinants has to be made by the CIO uh, and that team around cybersecurity postures on interoperability, right? It's this ability to use these very flexible uh, and fundamentally different technologies in conjunction with a flexible and fundamentally different acquisition and procurement and deployment approach. Uh, We cannot continue to try to solve the problems that we have today uh, with the tools and approaches and the culture that we've had in the past. Um, and again, this isn't a particular area, but we are really looking forward to providing specific use cases with specific access to users um, in a way that opens up the aperture uh, to folks who don't normally play with us. Uh, we're not going to have a 75-page proposal. This is going to be a 10-page proposal, and it's not going to take 10 months. It might take 10 days, um, but we, we're confident that folks will be able to be interested uh, and be willing to play in that space. We're really very excited about it. So Harrison, one last question. It's an advice question. What advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service? And, and Michael, I like that question because you talk about public service, right? Uh, and, and there are nonprofits opportunities. There are charitable organization type opportunities. There are state level opportunities. 
uh, in addition to, to federal opportunities. Um, but I will say from, from my perspective, um, a lot of folks want to work on things that will make a difference. And I, from my money, we have that in space. Public service has that in space. The federal government has that in space. You want to work on things that matter, the things that scale. You want to work for a Fortune 500 company. How about a Fortune 1 company? Um, we have problems. We have challenges. We have opportunities um, that frequently are unique in the world. Um, and the ability to pursue those types of things. Um, you like DLT. You're interested in crypto and can't ever imagine that that would be anything that you would work with the federal government on. I would tell you that the Internal Revenue Service uh, was on a multi-jurisdictional effort and a multi-agency effort uh, to shut down the world's largest child pornography ring, something which I think everybody could get behind. Public service would be a pretty good description of that. And the IRS Office of Criminal Investigation de-anonymized Bitcoin transactions to track those folks down. We work on terrorist financing activities. If you want to do something that engages the customer and how do I make sure that I can get access to the largest number of people and help them the most, and you talk about call centers, FEMA, IRS, right? We engage with people when they need help. Um, the opportunity to, to work on projects that will fundamentally make a difference and to make those systems function better in support of the people uh, and entities that are designed to support, um, to me, it's an opportunity that is, uh, that is second to none. Wonderful advice, important advice. Harrison, I want to thank you for coming on today and taking some time out of your busy schedule to be with us. But more importantly, I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. I appreciate that, Michael. It is, um, it's, it's rather humbling with the team that I work with. They are, they are incredible, and uh, it's great to come to work every day. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Harrison Smith, Director of Enterprise Digitization at the IRS and president of the ACT Executive Committee. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.